this month as we've been walking through the Advent season, we've had different children come and hang an ornament on our tree representing the promises that come from Scripture. This morning, Jana Dignan is going to hang an ornament as we read from Matthew chapter 1, starting in verse 18 this morning. Matthew chapter 1, starting in verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with a child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. This morning, the children between ages or grades 1st through 6th are dismissed for children's church. They'll gather together upstairs in the children's chapel for the remainder of our time. They can head there now. The holidays are always... Uh a special time for me, especially Christmas. Easter as well, equally as well. Um, for 18 years of my life, some of you, many of you know this, I, I didn't grow up in the church, and so I didn't have the privilege of doing what these children did just now, to be a part of the church at Christmas. And so there's always a special sense of the holidays and, and a, a sweetness about it for me. Um, tonight, we'll get to Taste that again as we come together for Christmas Eve. I hope you'll be able to join us. I know some of you have other plans and may have to go other places, but we hope that as many as can will join us tonight. We'll spend an hour here in the sanctuary from uh, 6 to 7. We try to get you as, as close to 7 out of here to go and, and uh, do what you do on Christmas Eve, your traditions. But we'll just spend time tonight singing the Christmas carols um, reading scripture and hearing special music it it is it is incredible to me um, as as I sing those carols, I hope you notice it every year as well. When you sing the traditional Christmas carols, um, I sang those even though we weren 't in the church because they were sung at Christmas time. You heard them on the radio, you heard other things, but you heard them, but it, it just went right over the top of me how full they are of the gospel. When I entered into the church at age 18 and, and gave my life to Christ and, and began to see those carols in a different way, I began to see how full they were of, of, of Scripture and gospel truth. And one of, the, one of the most significant times at Christmas time is that service tonight, to just sing those carols and realize that they're full they're full of the gospel. It was all around me for 18 years, but it didn't get a hold of my heart until I was a senior in high school in February of 1973. I first learned those 
um, the story of Christmas, ironically, I've told you this as well, I first learned it in a, in a two-room schoolhouse, a public schoolhouse. I went to a school that was a, it was, it was a, a public school, it was a, a town school, but it had a country flavor because it was a two-room schoolhouse and there were multiple grades in it. It was out a ways out of, out of town that I grew up in. And uh, I, I remember, um, just vividly remember, one Christmas program. It's, in fact, the only one I remember. I was there from kindergarten to third grade. But the one I remember was the one in which I was a wise man and got to present the gifts. And I remember the Christmas story. That auditorium, I'm sure if I went back to it, it would just be teeny tiny to go back. It was, it was small. It was in the basement of that school. It, it just seemed huge. That, and I still remember that program. And, and then in third grade, we had to move away. And I, I just had a, an ache in my soul as I moved away from that school, wanting to go back. And, and really, the reason was things like that program. That program specifically, I think, I missed it. There was something happened that night as that story unfolded, as we presented it there, that I think was the beginning of God really beginning to draw my heart to him. Um, and I learned it there. Um, I, I shared with you a couple of weeks in a row here in our prayer time about our Christmas program that was presented last Sunday night. Many of you saw that program as all the children were here and had a, a, a large group of children participate in that. Many of those children who don't come regularly on Sunday morning, and I told you there was one specific boy that would be there last Sunday night, and he was. He's been coming for a couple of years, and uh, this year he lives with a, in a different home than he lived a year ago. Doesn't no longer lives with his father. Lives with an aunt now. Gets moved around, but we got attached to him, and he comes on our Wednesday night program. But I told you the story that that he um, all year last year, a year ago, we had the program. He was a part of it all year long as we drove those vans on Wednesday from from December to May. Every time we were in there, nearly every time, he wanted to hear the Christmas story played. And I realized it's because God touched his heart. There was something connected to him that night of that program that he wanted it to continue. And I I felt that, um, as I shared it with you, how powerful that was. But I felt it partly because I had an affinity to that. That's really what happened to me. And, and we just can't underestimate, I think, the Christmas story. The scripture, I read it to you twice, or we read it to you twice this morning out of Luke, right out of Matthew. Sometimes we just, we just go on autopilot at Christmas time and don't hear that story. But it is powerful. I hope you heard it this morning. I hope you don't go on autopilot at Christmas time. And we're going to go back to it here this morning. Um, I, I was, as I was preparing this week, I was on Twitter and, and reading a Twitter feed that came. And one of the Twitter feeds that came was an admonition by, um, I, I believe it was Tim Keller, who pastors in New York City. I, I think it was on his feed, but, or, or maybe the Gospel Coalition, one of the two. But the, anyway, the, it doesn't matter who sent it, it was the significance of it. And the significance of it was this, that we need to, we need to be careful. He's speaking to pastors. Be careful. Be careful at Christmas time. Basically, he was saying, be careful at Christmas time not to try to get too cute about the Christmas program. I've stood in this pulpit for f- almost 40 years at Christmas time and had to have Advent series and themes and, and probably at times tried to get too cute, too novel, 
something that would catch their attention because somehow we get the idea that the Christmas story is old hat. And they, they warned us, be careful, be careful, be careful of that. It has power and it is powerful. And so we need to hear it and I need to proclaim it without being too cute. And so this morning, I, I, in an attempt not to be cute, I want us to look at it again. Look at what Matthew wrote here about Jesus. And uh, really take some time to let it sink in. If, if you've been here through Advent, you know that a text got quoted in this text, in Matthew. We were speaking out of Isaiah through Advent on occasion, Matthew or Isaiah chapter 7. But this particular quote that gets lifted out of the Old Testament in verse 23, that's what I want to center what I say today on. This, the, the quote that says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. That was spoken first by the prophet Isaiah to King Ahaz. And it was spoken to King Ahaz to say, God has a promise for you, King Ahaz. You think that it is safer to trust the Assyrians than it is to trust God. And this says it isn't. And that's what Isaiah was saying to him. It is not safer to trust the Assyrians to protect you. It is safe to trust God to protect you. Saying to Ahaz, in a sense, don't get cute, just trust God. But this promise then gets carried now over into the New Testament, and we understand that the fulfillment of that was the birth of Jesus, God with us. So what I'd like to do this morning is like to take some time to just just answer the question, how should we hear this particular text? It says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. And then Matthew tells us what Emmanuel means when he says, which means God with us. What I want to focus upon and center in on this morning is how should we hear that this morning? How should I hear it? How should you hear it this morning? There are several things in it that I want to take note of. The first thing that I think we should hear in this text this morning is that God with us means God chose, God chose to draw near to us. It says it in the text, which means God with us. God chose to draw, draw near to us. And if you, if you see that text, it, and it says, which means God with us, it, it, it starts with God. What we should first hear is the word God. When we think about God drawing near, we think about God among us, when we think about what the word Emmanuel means, we first should just stop. Don't go any farther than the word God. And just plant yourself there first. Plant yourself with the word God. Think about who he is for a moment. His transcendence. Really focus on his transcendence, his otherliness. We'll get to the point of eminence. We'll get to the point of of how he became fully man. But don't, don't start there. If you start there, you're going to get in trouble. It doesn't start there. It starts with God. Listen, listen to the book of Isaiah again this morning. Just, just listen to what Isaiah says about this God. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with him? Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundation of the earth? 
It is he who sets above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants, you and I, are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither. And the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then will you compare me, that I should be like him, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their host by number, who calls them by name. By the greatness of his might and because he's strong in power, not one is missing. Have you not known Have you not heard the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth? He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. It's that God that we're talking about. God, that transcendent God that we cannot in our finiteness fully comprehend. He he is... He is other than us. And, and uh, we need to start there. We need to start there or we'll get ourselves in trouble. Um, we need to start with the transcendence and weightiness of God if the significance of him being with us is really going to settle into us. And we live in a culture today that more and more, more and more is losing that sense of the transcendence of God. And as they lose it, as they lose it, the God with us means little. And we merely let it become about a God who we create in our own image. If we don't start with God, we will let our sinful hearts twist who that God is into an idol of our own making. We dare not do that, or you lose the power of this promise when it says, God with us, in the text this morning. God is not just a good old boy. God is not someone that we use for our glory. God is the God of glory, the God of transcendence. And that God That God of great weightiness, the best way I can say is our world has just taken the weightiness of God away to their own detriment. That weighty God is the God who now chooses, chooses of his own volition, not anything outside of himself compelled him to do it. It wasn't as though he needed a buddy down here. But he chose, he chose to draw near to us. When you begin to see it in that context, it changes things. In my early days of faith, I told you that I came to Christ at the age of 18. In those early days, even my early days of ministry, I didn't have a God who was transcendent enough. I didn't have a God who was weighty enough. I didn't have a God who was holy enough in my mind. I had had an idea of who God was, 
I think, enough of an idea to, to come to faith in Christ, but I didn't have enough of an idea to lead a people about who that God was. And had God not mercifully early in my ministry helped me to see God and his holiness, I'm not sure that I'd still be in ministry today. I've told you that. But he did, and he helped me. And R.C. Sproul, more than any other uh, writer in those early days, greatly influenced me. R.C. Sproul passed away in these past few days. Many of you saw that. But he wrote a book called The Holiness of God. And, and God in his providence in a bookstore in the town that I grew up in, when I was really young, I picked up that book. And I began to open it and read it. And it, it just changed my idea of who the God was that had drawn near to me. I had much of the experience, certainly don't liken it fully to what Peter had, but if you remember the story of Peter, remember him? Simon? The scripture says in Luke chapter 5 that on occasion, on one occasion, they had been fishing all night and caught nothing. And Jesus asked if he could borrow their boat, and he, he borrowed it, and he went out, and he, he, he spoke for a while. He opened the scriptures to them for a while. And then when he was finished, he said, okay, go out and cast your nets again. And Peter said, we have toiled all night and caught nothing. But he did it. The disciples went out, and they cast their nets, and the nets were so full that they had to call for others to come. And I can just imagine that Peter maybe was frantically working and helping for a while and then all of a sudden maybe drew back as others got there and were able to help and bring those nets in and he, he, he kind of looked at the circumstance and the situation and God did something in his life and his response was, depart from me. Just, just think about this. They're fishing. And then Peter says, depart from me for I am a sinful man, Where did that come from? Where did it come from? They're fishing. It came from the fact that somehow the weightiness, he knew that that Jesus had drawn near, fully understand who Jesus was, but he knew he drawn But all of a sudden, he understands that somehow, to some dimension, that God, God is in the midst of this. A weighty God is in the midst of this. And he saw himself. He saw his sin. And you see, that's what happens when we get a weighty view of God. First, it shows us our sin. You see, in my early days of faith, I struggled with assurance. I struggled with, with even though I had given my life to Christ, struggled with whether really my sin was cared for. And so what I did is I started to make an effort in my life to draw near to God by what I did. I started to do things that I thought would help me to draw near to him. I didn't understand what the text says. It, it, the text really tells us here that God's drawing near is, is not about um, God showing us that he's more approachable. When Jesus come, isn't, came as God among us, it isn't about about God showing us that God's more approachable, but rather it was about one who would come to make God approachable. 
In other words, God was God. He was holy. Peter knew he was holy. He knew his sin was a problem. And why God came and chose to dwell among us was to show us how God could be approachable. That moves me to the second point. And the second point is that the drawing near meant Jesus was going to die. It meant Jesus was going to die. That one who had come near, the God who had come near, that God among them was going to become fully man that he might die. That's the reason that God drew near. The book of Hebrews tells us that. I want to I read it to you this morning a portion out of Hebrews, and you can, you can listen here. We've, we've spoke through the book of Hebrews, but just listen to the text. Hebrews chapter 2, beginning at verse 14. This is why God drew near, that God might be approachable by us because of what Jesus accomplished. Verse 14 says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood. He himself, Jesus, likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, get these words, therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. He had to become fully man continued to be fully God, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. That's why Jesus came. That's a big word, propitiation, but basically that he might take the punishment for the sins of all who would look to him to be their savior. That's what propitiation means. It turns away what should have come to us. Jesus propitiates that away and takes it in himself that we might not have to experience it. Jesus came to die to accomplish that so that our sins could be forgiven and that we might be able to be approach God. Jesus had to die. He had to die. If you look over a little bit farther into chapter 4, this is what he accomplished. It says in verse 16, let us then, because of that, because of that propitiation, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we might receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You see, it's about us being able to approach him. He didn't come. He didn't come to say he's not transcendent and he's not holy. And Peter wasn't right in saying, I'm a sinful man. He didn't come to tell us that's not true. But he came to make a way, a way away that we could draw near because of his death. Jesus had to die. He came to die. It's what Christmas is all about. He came into this world that some 30 years later, he might die as a propitiation. Well, the next thing that I think we see in the text, not only 
Did God choose to draw near? And in that drawing near, die. But the waiting isn't over. In other words, he has come. Jesus has come. He is God with us. But but the end hasn't come yet. The full consummation of all that Jesus brought has not been accomplished. And so we continue to live in a broken world. The fact that God is with us and among us and approachable is true. And he's approachable that we might receive grace in our time of need. And there still is great brokenness in our world. We live in that time right now. We live in the now and not yet of the kingdom. We live in the coming, but not the full consummation of the kingdom. I don't want to spend a lot of time here, but one of the powerful truths of, of the book of Matthew, of God with us and God among us, is that um, we have an answer to the suffering of the world. The big picture of that answer is that sin. Sin has caused suffering. Sin has caused brokenness. The small picture of that is, is, harder, to, is harder to understand. Why one person suffers more than another, why they have suffering more concentrated, all of those kinds of things. Those questions are not as easy to understand. But the reason it's broken is because of sin. But what, what this text tells us, that God drew near to us, what it says is that that God drawn, drew near to us and he experienced all of the suffering of this world. Now, again, we don't have all of the small pictures. Some of you are going through some things or family members are going through things or family members did go through some things and you may have questions of why. Why such suffering? Why such difficulty? Why was it concentrated this way and not over here? Again, the big picture is sin. Sin is the brokenness is because of sin, but the small picture of why some suffer more than others, we can't fully answer. But the fact that God has come near to us and entered in to die makes me be willing to trust him. A God who didn't stay away from it. A God who didn't stay isolated from it. A transcendent God, a holy God, an all-powerful God entered fully into the brokenness. And so if you're suffering today, if you're hurting today, let me tell you, you can trust one who walks with you in it and has experienced it himself. We have a high priest who is able to sympathize with our weakness because he lived there and died there. Fourthly, all of that says to us that God is unswervingly unswervingly for his people. A God who entered in so that he might provide a way that we could draw near and be in fellowship with God is unswervingly for those people. He loves those people. No longer, as we, we, we sang this morning, there no longer is, is their wrath being stored up that will one day come on all outside of Christ. But only love. God is lovingly working with his people. Listen to what it says in Romans chapter 8. If God is for us, who can be against us successfully? I added that. If God is for us, who can be against us successfully? We have people come against us. In this broken world, things come against us. But no one will successfully come against us, ultimately. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, 
will he not also with him graciously give us all things? If he came and entered in to die for his people, will he withhold anything from them? No. He won't withhold anything that they need to live for his glory and one day live for him forever. And then finally, and we won't spend a lot of time on this, but the last point, which, which in, in these last years of ministry has just become a sweet truth to me about God drawing near. And that is this, that, that he identifies us. When he chooses to draw near, he identifies with us. He enters into the suffering. He suffers horrendously for us. We can trust him because of that. He gives us grace for the time of suffering. We still experience in this broken world in our time of need. But the amazing thing is though he doesn't quit identifying with us when he goes back to heaven. For a long time, I just kind of had this idea, I hadn't thought about it much or very hard, that when Jesus died, he just threw off being fully man. In other words, he was fully God from all eternity past, 2,000 years ago became fully man, But then, after 30-some years of life on earth and the cross and the resurrection, he goes back to the right hand of the Father and is no longer fully man anymore. I just assumed that until I really started to see what Scripture says. Listen to what it says. But our citizenship, it's out of the book of Philippians, is in heaven. And from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So far, that fit what I believed all those years. We have a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, fully God. But then it says this, who, trans- who will transform our lowly body, which good, that didn't, that didn't wreck my idea until I come to this. He, he will transform our lowly body to be like his, his glorious body. He still has a body. He's still fully man and yet fully God for all eternity future. So he doesn't just identify us with us for a moment and then return to the old state of fully God. But for all eternity, some 2,000 years ago, God entered in to be fully God as he always was but also took on being fully man for all eternity future. Think about that. He identifies with us. That's the degree to which God chose to draw near to us. It's incredibly powerful. So now, all of that, I think all of those things are things to chew on, things to think about when you think about God drawing near. So then how does that apply to your life now, just just like this past week, this weightiness of God. Why is it so important? Why do we need a God who is, is transcendent and imminent, both? He's other and yet draws near eminence. That's what it means. Why do we need him together? Why, why do we dare not separate them? It's because then we can have powerful truths that as I was spending some time this week in the morning reading a devotional that I read, this powerful truth just 
bore on my heart. I want to read it to you. And maybe it'll do the same for you. Or maybe some other truth of scripture will do the same. I was reading from Revelation chapter 12. That was the text to be read. And then there was a commentary by Don Carson in a book that I use in the mornings. And I just want to read what he said about Revelation chapter 12. Listen to what he said. He says, the woman in this chapter is not Mary. It's speaking of a woman in Revelation chapter 12. It's not Mary, but a figure representing the people of God. From her springs Jesus, the son who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. In verse 5. Yet she is not simply Israel... For after Jesus ascends to God, the woman is left behind with the rest of her offspring, those who obey God's commandments and hold to the testimony of Jesus. The woman then represents the collective people of God, both Old and New Testament. What is he saying? It's not just the people of God in Old Testament, but Old and New together. The woman in Revelation chapter 11 represents both all the people of God for all time. Well, then it turns and it says Satan in this chapter not only, faith, uh, not only fails in his vicious attempt to destroy Jesus in verses 4 and 5, but he's defeated by Michael and thrown out of heaven. He is hurled to the earth, raging against the restriction in verse 13, raging as well because he knows that his time is short in verse 12. Before his utter destruction, he is filled with fury against the woman and her offspring. Much of the rest of the chapter describes his attack on the woman and her children, on us Christians on God's people, in symbol-laden language drawn from the Old Testament. Now, he talks specifically about the attacks, and this is where the transcendence and eminence come together. Among his attacks are accusations designed both to destroy our confidence and to engage God's wrath against people as sinful as we are. Did you get that? In other words, Satan comes to try to undermine our confidence in God and also to engage God's wrath against people as sinful as we are, even as Christians. Satan is the accuser of the brothers. Verse 10, but in one crucial verse, verse 11, John tells us how these believers overcame the devil. This is the part that's probably pretty familiar to you. Goes on to say in that they overcame him by the blood of the lamb. Carson would say the preposition translated as by in that particular translation in the NIV should be rendered on the ground. So they overcame him on the ground of the blood of the lamb. And then he goes on to say, when all his accusations, Satan's accusations, are brought before us, so many of them entirely justified if we gauge things only by the quality of our faithfulness. In other words, Satan is accusing the brothers. He's accusing Christians of sin. And if we gauge those only on the degree of our faithfulness, there's some truth there, folks. There's truth there. None of us, none of us, none of us, not one person in this room, eat and drink always to the glory of God. Whatever we do, that's my definition. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. None of us do that perfectly any week, any day, 
of the year. So there are some accusations that come that if we base them on our faithfulness to fulfill even that, whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, do all to the glory of God every moment of your life, there is some truth to that accusation. If that's the base, what it's based on. Satan is silenced when we insist that our acceptance before God is grounded not in ourselves, but in the death of Jesus Christ. Scripture says, who is he that condemns? Paul exultantly asked, Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, who was raised, is at the right hand of God and is interceding for us. And then this statement, we neither have nor need another ground of our acquittal. We neither have nor need another ground of our acquittal. That is why it is so important that we have a weighty God. We don't, we don't, we don't somehow neuter our God, somehow cut him down so that we can somehow measure up. We don't have to do that. And in fact, it's foolish to do that. He's God. You can't whittle him down. He is holy. He is transcendent. As much as you want to somehow take that weightiness away so you can feel better, it doesn't take the weightiness away. He's still transcendent even if you don't believe it. Even if you've made an idol of him in your own image to make you more comfortable, in the end, you're going to find he's transcendent. You're going to find that the accusations of Satan have some basis in them. If, if the basis of our acquittal rests in our work. But the glory of the gospel, it doesn't. It rests in the work of another who drew near to us that he might die, that God could be approachable. Even a transcendent, holy God could be approachable. You see why it's so important? Because that's where where we rest. That's where we have our hope is not that God is somehow less than what our mind thinks he is, or we can make him that. But God, in all of his splendor, and all of his glory, and all of his majesty, and all of his holiness, drew near, drew near to us, that we might approach him through Christ. I hope that's what you rest in this Christmas Eve morning. I hope that's the basis of your hope. I hope that's what you hear when you sing in just a moment the words, Emmanuel, God with us, a God who is with us, and we need not fear him, but we can rejoice in all that he's done for us in providing propitiation, full propitiation for our sin. Let's stand and sing.
His name is called Emmanuel 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 His name is called Father, your word tells us that you drew near to us in the person of your son. A son named Jesus who would save his people from their sins by making propitiation for them that they might draw near on the basis of that. Lord, our only hope is that our sin has been propitiated away. It's been turned away. And we can draw near. Father, I pray the sweetness of that will strengthen us, encourage us, and make this Christmas season sweet. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you.